Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome. I'm Otis, and today we're here talking with Emma Pomeroy, who is in Britain right now. Emma is the bioanthropologist on the, the current Shanadar cave excavations. Welcome. Thank you. What is the main focus of your research, or what, what are some of the main things that interest you? So very broadly, as you mentioned, I'm a um, human bioarchaeologist. Um, what really interests me is how and why people vary. That's the fundamental question and how variation, particularly in our, in our skeletons, can re- uh, reflect our history. So our individual history, but also our ancestors and our ancestral history, and also our interactions with the environment, be that with factors in our natural environment um, or components of our social and cultural environment that also help to to shape our um, our anatomy and our skeleton. So I think everything that I am interested in and that I work on comes back to that same question of why do we vary and what can we learn about ourselves and about our interaction with the world by looking at variation in the skeleton. You're currently working on several projects. Since 2016, you've been the paleoanthropologist at the Shanadar Cave Excavations. And yeah. this, is a, this is a very important site for Neanderthal research. Could you tell us a bit about the site? Sure. So um, Shanadar Cave, as you mentioned, is a really well-known um, paleoanthropological site. Um, it was So it's located in Iraqi Kurdistan. Um, in the foothills of the Barados Mountains, um, so in the northern part of um, current Iraq. And it's a very large um, karstic limestone cave. And it was first excavated um, between 1951 and 1960 by uh, an American archaeologist, um, Ralph Selecki. And he began excavations there um, initially with a, a small test trench and then over the years excavated quite a large trench right in the middle um, of the cave itself. And the reason the site became so well known was because in that trench he found the remains, some of them quite incomplete, but some of them very complete, of um, 10 Neanderthal individuals, including some infants and some adults. And there were various aspects of these skeletons and the way they were deposited um, and what we could tell from the skeletons about the lives of those Neanderthal individuals that really helped to shape how we perceive of um, Neanderthals today and and change some of the common perceptions at that time. Um, Because there is also a significant number of individuals from there, it does mean that uh, they're an important part of what we know about variation in Neanderthal anatomy and, and physical characteristics as well. Um, the relevance of the site went beyond that. So actually, um, in some of the upper levels at the back of the cave, uh, in the final season, uh, Selecki's team did excavate um, some proto-Neolithic uh, burials, about 35 individuals, um, and they provide some really important evidence of early sort of transitional farming communities. Um, and Selecki's wife, um, Rose Selecki, excavated a, uh, uh, an occupation site down by the river that the cave overlooks um, that's known as Zawi Shemi Shanadar, and that also provides some sort of key information about early um, farming communities in the region. So its importance spans sort of right from the Paleolithic through to the Neolithic and the origins of farming. But it's mostly, I think, at the moment, known for the Neanderthal remains that were found there. So uh, the initial project that ended in 1960, since when has the current project been running? So the current project um, began in 2014. So in 2011, um, the Kurdish regional government actually approached Professor Graham Barker um, from the Department of Archaeology at the University of Cambridge and asked whether he would be interested in 
beginning new excavations at the cave because none had taken place since 1960. Um, Ralph Selecki had actually been back a couple of times and tried to continue his work, um, but because of the political situation there, he'd been unable to. Um, and Professor Barker had uh, worked on other caves that had been excavated in the earlier part of the um, 20th century. So near cave in Borneo and um, Halfatea in Libya, for example, and he'd led sort of the re-excavation of these famous sites. So that's why the Kurdish government um, approached him with that ex expertise and that experience to revisit an important site in um, in their region uh, that was Shanadar Cave. So um, after applying for funding and getting the project set up, it began in 2014. And the purpose of the project was never actually to find any more Neanderthal remains. It was more to go back to Selecki's original work, um, because obviously our scientific techniques, our understanding of cave geology, um, our understanding of human um, behaviour and archaeology has changed a great deal uh, since 1960. So the idea was to go back with all those modern techniques and just carry out some relatively small-scale um, work sort of around the edges of Selecki's original trench so that we could tie up the modern evidence with the work that he did and give some new insights into how Neanderthals and early modern humans used the cave, um, the environment, and what that was like when they um, were making use of the cave, how they dealt with climatic change, uh, questions like that. So it really was never expected, actually, that there would be any more Neanderthal remains found. Um, but in 2015 was when they first started to find uh, Neanderthal remains, uh, just a small amount. But that's when I um, joined the project to help um, with the work on those. What would you say are some of the, the key finds from this site? So... Perhaps some of the most famous um, are some of the Neanderthal individuals themselves. So one who's particularly famous is known as Shanadar One. Now, he was uh, an older adult individual. He's been estimated to have been about sort of perhaps 50 years old when he died. Um, but he's really remarkable for the extent of disabilities and injuries that we can find um, evidence of on his skeleton. So this initial work was done by um, first... T. Dale Stewart, who was um, a physical anthropologist on Selecki's team, and then also um, Professor Eric Trinkhouse, who then took over and did the, sort of the largest and most detailed study of the Shanadar Neanderthals. And what he reported was a whole range of um, changes to Shanadar 1's skeleton. So, for example, there was clear evidence of a healed injury to his um, eye socket, on the left side, which probably left him blind in that eye. Then also we see evidence of um, him being paralysed in his right arm. So the right upper arm bone, the humerus, is completely um, withered, which indicates that it wasn't being used at all. And actually the right arm seems to have been missing um, from just above the elbow. And that seems to have been lost during life. So we don't know whether that was through amputation or through an accident. So he had only part of his right arm and he could only use um, the left arm. The, the part that he did have of that right arm um, was paralysed, it seems. Um, he was also fairly deaf. So recent work um, by Eric Trinkhouse again has shown that he had what we call... Um, external auditory exostoses, which basically means that there's bony growths inside the ear canal itself. And obviously, if you've got bone blocking up the ear canal, that stops um, the sound waves getting through, so you can't hear. Uh, so he was probably partly blind, as we've said, also um, probably fairly deaf. He had this paralysis on his um, right arm. He also had an active infection on one of his collarbones. He had evidence of uh, arthritis in his uh, lower limbs and in his feet. He'd broken some bones in his feet as well. And so all this evidence suggested that he probably couldn't have survived to sort of the grand old age of 50 um, without having had some 
support and help from his group members. Um, and so this led to discussions that this might be the first evidence for compassion among Neanderthals and in our um, sort of ancestors, if you like, because, as I said, otherwise he probably wouldn't have survived. Um, Shanadar III has also received a fair bit of discussion because in um, his ribs, there is evidence that he'd had a projectile injury relatively recently before he died. Um, so you can see that it's um, started to heal up a, around the edge of that uh, injury, but he probably died within perhaps a few months um, of sustaining that injury. So again, it suggests that he was perhaps cared for. But also, interestingly, some people have argued that it's clearly a projectile. Um, so something like a throwing spear, perhaps, which was technology that some people argue is associated with early modern humans rather than Neanderthals. So people have speculated, well, was this perhaps an early example of interpersonal violence and actually modern humans killing Neanderthals? And then, of course, one of the really famous um, groups of individuals, actually, um, from a slightly older date than Shanadar 1 and 3, um, is what's become known as the flower burial. So that's Shanadar 4. Um, now, Shanadar 4, they took um, sediment samples from around the bones at the time and sent them off to um, a pollen specialist, Arlette Liois uh, Gorin, and she analysed them and found clumps of pollen in there, which she argued could only really have come from whole flowers. And in samples that she'd been given from elsewhere in the cave, there was very little pollen at all. So she and Ralph Selecki argued that this seemed to be an intentional burial and that perhaps they had put flowers into the grave with the body. Now, this, of course, was also quite sort of revolutionary in how we thought about Neanderthal behaviour because it suggested again that compassion for the dead um, a sense of mourning and a sense of what the performance of ritual around the burial of a dead individual um, very similar to what we see in in our own species in modern humans so suggesting that Neanderthals had similar cognitive abilities which was something quite quite controversial at the time in fact, actually, um, and what's perhaps slightly less discussed is with Shanadar IV, they actually found the remains of three more individuals. Now, they didn't know exactly who was where in relation to each other because Shanadar IV, um, because it was very delicate, they used a technique called on block. So they removed him um, in a block of sediment so that he could be carefully excavated uh, in a museum or in a lab and when they excavated that block they actually found that there was evidence of at least two other adults and part of an infant as well and that's quite unusual the fact that we've got this sort of tight cluster of individuals within quite a small um, space and a small volume so yeah many reasons why why Neanderth the Neanderthals from Shanadar Cave have been um, attracted a lot of attention and received a lot of discussion. At the time, some of the ideas that, that Ralph Selecki put forward were actually very, very new. What were some of the ideas that he had put forward? So, as I've just mentioned, I mean, it was these ideas of Neanderthals actually being much more similar to us in the way they thought and in their cognitive abilities. So, for a long time, Neanderthals were sort of portrayed as your archetypal caveman, if you like, fairly stupid, um, quite brutish um, and yet this evidence that they were caring for one another that they were intentionally burying their dead and perhaps even putting flowers in with the body led Selecki to argue that actually they were much more like us in the way they thought in their emotions in their ability to feel empathy and compassion for their their fellow group members and that was really quite controversial and some of the evidence still is controversial. I mean, I think we've come to accept more now the idea that 
Neanderthals perhaps were not so different from us in terms of their their cognitive abilities. We do have other evidence of symbolic behaviour from the fact that they've used shells or eagle talons for um, decorating their bodies and so forth. Um, but yeah, at the time, these these ideas were were quite a big departure from what many thought of as being um, Neanderthal characteristics. Yeah, I guess there's been a lot of controversy over time over what defines humans. And I think maybe some people don't want, or did, I think today it's it's more accepted, but I think in the past there was a lot of ideas that we are better than the animals or we are more intelligent than the other primates or the other hominids. Right, and we're special in some way. And I think this might have touched upon some people's sensibilities of like, oh, but if they were just as intelligent as we were, we're not as special. And Exactly. I, I think even today, I don't know if, if there's many people that would still say it today, but I, I remember even 20 years ago, there was a lot of people that said, oh, we couldn't accept the idea that humans and Neanderthals would have interbred. That was like a ludicrous, and it was almost insulting. Like, the people would really argue that, why would these two animals interbreed? And, and now we know, I mean, it's, they did. We know genetically yeah. that this did happen. But I think it, it, if you had said, did wolves and coyotes ever interbreed? Like, no one, you know, someone might have an opinion, but, you know, you wouldn't get the heated debates about it that you do when it comes to humans. I, I think you're right. And I think that's also what makes you know this new evidence that we have or you know relatively new evidence okay we've perhaps the last 10 years now we've had evidence for this interbreeding between neanderthals and modern humans and people find it sometimes hard to accept for for various reasons sometimes the nature of the evidence sometimes this idea that we were quite different from them um but i think it renews that interest as well in just how similar or different we were because if we know that we you know modern humans and Neanderthals were having um, children together, it actually puts a very different light on how we understand how similar or different they were in their behaviour to sort of really understand the nature of that that interaction. And and there still is a substantial amount of debate. I think while some people will will accept that there are some hints of symbolic behaviour in what Neanderthals did, uh, equally in some of the earliest, what we would consider to be Homo sapiens, so modern humans, we don't have particularly strong evidence for, you know, especially sophisticated symbolic behaviour in them either. So we still actually have a lot of questions about when these kind of behaviours came about um, and why they came about uh, and exactly what the nature of those interactions between humans and uh, Neanderthals and Denisovans even were. Yeah, I think it's something that we're going to constantly be seeing more. Some some things maybe disprove or prove, but I think it's one thing that people will keep being interested in because it's it's looking at who we are based on, I guess probably our closest our closest non us relative. Uh, I I I would hesitate to say non human because I think that I think basically anything on. Anything from Homo erectus onwards is 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 so close that. Uh, yeah, no, I. We, we know physically they were close. So, I mean, you have to wonder: okay, how much more than just physically were we the same? Like, what else was the same? And I think we'll find it a lot more. I think those those are really important questions, and yeah, I think it, I think like the point you make about terminology and how we speak about the different species and what we refer to as human. Um, it's actually kind of messy. It's one of those things that um, can be difficult because equally calling ourselves modern humans feels odd right. as well. It's an odd phrasing. So then do we just call ourselves homo sapiens all the time? But then some people dispute the fact now that we're a completely separate species given this interbreeding. So so yeah, the, ter- the terminology can get a little bit um, a little bit messy in there as to exactly what we mean but I I would agree you know we do see um, an essentially kind of modern body plan um, going back much further even though brain size continues to increase and behavior changes but 
those changes in anatomy and behavior don't necessarily go hand in hand as well so that's one of the interesting interesting questions you know how these behaviors do evolve and when and why right what do you think that we're going to sort of discover as we as research progresses about what would be the same and what might have been different between us um that's a really good question it's a really difficult one i think one of the important things is going to be trying to look at questions in a more nuanced way. So, for example, when we're talking about Neanderthal burials, the classic question was, you know, did they or did they not bury their dead? And actually, that's a bit of a a simplistic way of looking at things. And I think you could say, well, you know, we do have some evidence that probably they did bury their dead some of the time. But that's not in itself what's interesting. What What is more interesting is to say, okay, when did they bury their dead? And why did they bury their dead? Was that for purely practical reasons? Or was that reflecting some kind of symbolic and abstract thought or some kind of emotions? And that's more important because that tells us something much more interesting about the way our sort of ancestors or our our close evolutionary relatives thought um, and the evolution of that sort of behaviour and way of thinking. Equally, we need to look quite carefully. So we don't want to talk about Neanderthals as a completely kind of monolithic entity in the same way we wouldn't want to talk about modern humans today as a monolithic entity and that you know we all do one particular thing because we don't that's one of the interesting things is the huge cultural variation that we see in our species and we've got hints hints of that in Neanderthals. Yeah especially if you go back if we went 200 years back from now like today we have global culture because of you know, television and the internet and, and a lot of things start you, it appears in one place, but then people everywhere start adopting certain things, maybe mm-hmm. ways of eating food or ways of presenting in the media, uh, your stories, your songs and stuff. But if we went a couple hundred years back in time, you would see major differences even in, in different populations. These are purely just how, how it's manifested culturally. It had nothing to do with biologically people were predisposed to prepare their food this way or to prefer a certain style of music. Right. And and so that's where it gets really interesting, isn't it? Because that's where we see what we consider to be really kind of modern human behavior, that that true cultural variation. It's not determined by biological necessity or, you know, the environment, the the natural environment. It it's truly cultural. Um and so that's where some of these same questions get interesting. So the same as so some places modern humans will bury their dead, some places they will cremate their dead, some places there'll be, you know, we can think of Buddhist sky burials, for example, where the bodies are left out to be eaten by scavengers. Um, we have all these different practices and and it's more interesting to say, okay, well, did Neanderthals have a similar variation? And we have some evidence that they perhaps did. You know, there are some sites where we see bodies not being buried, but actually being defleshed. Some people have argued consumed. So perhaps there is cultural variation there there too. So coming back to your original question, I think we shouldn't be too simplistic in the kind of questions we asked of the evidence. Um, we should try as much as possible to to look for the patterns and let it speak for the speak for itself, let the data speak for itself rather than going for questions that are too simplistic and too black and white, you know, did they or didn't they bury? It, it actually, there's many more interesting questions and much more nuance to the behaviour um, to be to be found and to be understood. And so that's where I think in in the coming years, our, um, our understanding of Neanderthal behaviour will become more refined and more more interesting I think and and I hope, very much hope that the current work we're doing at Shandar Cave will contribute to our, that more nuanced and refined understanding of geographical variation and temporal variation and and perhaps what we might call cultural variation um, in in that particular species. So 
as the project's paleoanthropologist, what is your role in the project? What sort of things are you responsible for? What kind of activities would you do in the field or when you're back at the lab after the excavations? So one of the big parts of my role is that when we're out in the field, if there is any bone found during the excavation, I will quite often actually come and check it um, while it's still in the ground, if possible. Um, if we think there's a chance or if the excavators think there's a chance that it could belong to um, a hominin, so either modern humans or Neanderthals um, or our other other relatives. So the bigger pieces of bone I, I might check in the ground. Some of the other smaller pieces that perhaps come out of the wet sieving, for example, or um, that are really too small to be individually plotted on site. Um, I'll also spend time going through all those as well. Um, once they come back to our sort of little makeshift lab in the field, um, just to check if there's anything there and constantly monitor what there is, um, just in case anything should come up. And then we can actually go back to that particular place and say, okay, there seems to be Neanderthal material here. I mean, that hasn't been the case really so far, but it's always worth keeping an eye on um, how things are going. Then if Neanderthal remains or modern human remains are found um, in situ, then I will be involved, closely involved in the excavation of those. Um, and the actual excavation of the bones themselves um, is my job, essentially. So I will be, once we've excavated down to about the level where the Neanderthal bones are, then I usually come in and take over the excavation. I'll do the exposing and recording of the bones um, the consolidation in situ and the lifting of bones with obviously help from um, our brilliant team that we have out at the cave um, in terms of, you know, we have other people doing the photography. They, um, we have fantastic people working with us from the Canterbury Archaeological Trust and they do photogrammetry of the remains in situ, for example. So we've been able to build some wonderful 3D models of the, the remains we found um, while they're still in the ground and things like that and and ensure that everything's recorded to uh, as best as we can um and then there's other people involved doing um sort of some of the sampling and some of the the dating work and things like that but yeah most of my role will be if there are remains in situ i'll be excavating and helping to record and lift those um if there aren't any particular remains, then I muck in with all the other jobs. So if they need an extra pair of hands on site, I will be on site helping with excavation or recording or whatever's needed. Um, if they need people to sort of sort through all the material that's coming out of the sieving and flotation, I'll be down in the lab doing that. If they need someone to help with the flotation, I'll be doing that. I mean, we very much work as a team and everyone on the team sort of mucks in and, and does whatever whatever needs doing if their particular kind of specialist skill isn't required in, in that particular moment. How many people are usually out there during any particular season? So there's typically about 12 of us at a time. Um, so it's a relatively small team. Um, but as I said, it's the point was never to do huge scale excavations more much more sort of fine work and detailed work um in strategic parts of the site um so yeah there's usually about 12 of us what about after the excavations i don't know how long the field season is but i, I would guess it's probably maybe it's a month or give or take yeah exactly so that leaves you 11 more months what kind of things would you normally do after the excavation yeah so i mean there is much more work to be done and um, it's worth saying that many of us on the team have um academic jobs or like i mentioned our um colleagues from canterbury archaeological trust they are um full-time field archaeologists in the commercial sector so all of us kind of go back to our day jobs essentially so many of us who are in the academic sector are lecturing and teaching and and doing all the admin and stuff um, and then when we have time for research, we'll be working on um, the material that comes back. So we work quite closely with the um, General Director of Antiquities um, for Kurdistan and the um, 
in particular the director of antiquities Soren office which is the the local office and they very kindly allow us to export some of the material on temporary loan so that it can be analysed or conserved or further worked on um, back in the UK. So for example um, some of the things that I'm doing at the moment is um, CT scanning the Neanderthal remains that we have. So because they're very fragile um, we expose them as best we can on site and then I consolidate them so that's putting on a kind of it's almost like a kind of glue that helps to stabilize the bone but it also stabilizes the sediment around it and then we take the bone out in small sections with the sediment and part of what we'll do is actually micro CT scan each of those little blocks of bones before we start doing any work on them um, just to have a 3D digital record of exactly what's there the next stage so even that in itself takes some doing um but it, we've had some very interesting um initial results just from being able to do that then the next stage obviously is going to be um further cleaning and conservation and that will be sort of a very slow and painstaking um process then there'll be physical reconstruction to do um as well as re-scanning those remains so once they're fully cleaned up to have a digital model of them then completely clean um as well so those kind of things are the are the sort of things that um, I would be working on. And then we have other members of the team who uh, work on, you know, the microfauna, for example. So the, the small mammal bones or the other animal bones or the pollen samples. And so they go off to the respective specialists and they're also working on um, on the samples that get sent to them. But as I said, it's it's a case of having to fit it in amongst all the other things that we're um that we're doing as part of our regular jobs. Yeah, I think probably most other archaeologists will will know that you know it's about one month in the field and then the rest of the year it's analyzing what you can from that. But I think a lot of the the general public might not be aware of that because you see on if you watch on the Discovery Channel or Nat Geo, you will almost always see the field excavations. And so Right. I think it's important for people to remember that the majority of what we do is in the lab. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I don't know if anyone's worked out that ratio of how long you spend in the field to how long, how much lab work it generates, but I'm sure we spend several times the number of hours we spend in the field, actually then subsequently in the lab, because there's a lot of work to be done. You know, it doesn't just stop when the excavation stops that's pretty much where things are just starting really so yeah i think that's just you're collecting the material at that point you're collecting the initial stages yeah you're collecting some materials some data and then the the big work begins of figuring okay what do we have why is it important what are the details yep and then trying to fit all all the different lines of evidence together and gain that overall understanding no absolutely you mentioned that one of the initial or the primary objectives of the current project was to go back, revisit the the work that was initially done in the in the 1950s and to sort of supplement it with the methods and techniques that we have today. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit, what are some of the research methods that were available to you in this project that would not have been available in the 1950s? Sure. So, I mean, one of the critical ones is the kind of dating techniques that we have. So back in um, Ralph Zalecki's time, basically the only method they had then was radiocarbon. And radiocarbon is great, but it only actually allows you to date things up to about 45,000 years old. And then anything older than that, it's just beyond the scope of radiocarbon. Um, so the youngest Neanderthals, if you like, that Selecki found, um, Shandar 1, Shandar 3, they were up around 45,000 years ago. But ones like the flower barrier, or Shandar 4, um, was substantially older, but he was completely unable to um, directly date those remains because he just didn't have the techniques available to him. Um, so now, for example, we um, use a technique called OSL, or optically stimulated luminescence, um, where we can actually date the sediments um, going back much further. So that's a really important um, 
advance. And of course, even radiocarbon dating, you know, has been quite substantially refined so we can get much more precise dates um, and date different materials that perhaps um, could be um, than could be dated before. So even just in the dating, there's a, a whole kind of change in, in what's possible. Looking at all the other techniques, um, we can do much more work now, for example, with um, the micromorphology of the soil. So that means like the soil microstructure. And there's a technique that's um, used at many sites now where you actually take you know, a small block, so a little block that would probably fit um, in your hands uh, of sediment from the wall of the excavation um, intact. So you take out the block hole, you then take that back to the lab, you um, impregnate it with a resin, and then you can slice it into very thin microscope slides and actually look at the the microscopic structure and all the particles of the sediment um, under the microscope. And that can tell us a great deal, actually, about how the different layers of sediments formed um, and the kind of processes that were involved and how different sediments might differ from one another in ways that you don't necessarily see and pick up with the naked eye. So that's another major, um, major advance in a technique that, that Selecki wouldn't have had available to him. Uh, so, so, yeah, there's... That's just a couple of examples of the kinds of things that we're able to do now. For people that aren't familiar with what can we get from the soil, what information would you gain from studying the soil? So perhaps I'll, I can use the example of these new Neanderthal remains that we found. So we um, found those in the wall of the excavation um, and we could see that they sort of followed a slight dip, so as if they were in a, a small depression, say. But there are questions and there's been a lot of debates with Neanderthals about whether they in, might have sometimes intentionally dug holes to put bodies in, um, whether they covered them over with sediment afterwards. Um, and so what we can do with the micromorphology, so we took a block that overlapped between the sediments that contained the bones and the sediments directly underneath. Now, when... Um, my colleagues uh, Lucy Farr and Charlie French looked at that under the microscope, they could tell us some really interesting things. So, for example, they could say that those two sediments were very different in their composition. So the one that was around the bones looked very different in colour and texture to the one that that depression had been dug into. They could also say, so if you imagine if you're digging a hole, whatever you're using to dig, as you sort of push down and scoop out the soil, you're actually compressing the soil just underneath your spade or whatever you're digging with um, a little bit, but you're not removing that, you're just pushing it down. And we can actually see in the layer of sediment just below the one that the bones are in, that that's had exactly that kind of compression. So that's telling us that it's most likely to have been intentionally dug by someone or, or something. Um, we can also see that, for example, in the microstructure, you can see how quickly a sediment has accumulated. And one thing that's quite clearly different between the sediment that surrounds the bones versus the sediment that's underneath is the material around the bones has accumulated really quickly. It's very uniform and all looks pretty similar and there's no kind of smaller layers and, and smaller structures within it. So again, that suggests that perhaps the sediment was being put over the top of the body to cover it up and that's why it's fairly homogenous. So there's a whole suite, you know, a whole range of um, details about exactly what happened when that body was deposited in that depression that we couldn't really just tell with the naked eye. Well, one of the things that you learned is that the the burials were very likely intentionally dug and like intentionally covered over with soil afterwards. Uh, what was there any other new information that came out of this excavation? Yeah, so I mean that's particularly in relation to these new remains that we found, and I should explain that these were found ex right next to where they found Shandar 4. So I mentioned before they cut out 
um, a block of sediment containing Shandar Four's bones to take it down to the lab and excavate. And right next to where they'd cut that away is where the new remains are that I've been talking about. So the evidence we have is particularly in relation to those new remains. One of the other really interesting things that we can see in that um, soil micromorphology slide is that there are mineralized plant remains. So these are ancient plant remains that have undergone sort of chemical changes, just as the bones do over the years. Um, and that probably also includes some pollen. And that material, so this plant material, is within the deposits, the sediments that are around the Neanderthal bones. And that's really interesting and potentially very important because I mentioned before there was a debate over Shandar 4 and whether truly this individual had been buried with flowers or, or people in subsequent years said, well, no, the pollen was probably just modern contamination um, from when the bones were exposed, when they were being excavated. You know, there were tons of workmen around all coming in and tramping plant pollen and remains in people living in the cave. It must have been modern pollen that had just fallen in or other people argued that actually maybe it was from burrowing rodents. So they're known to drag flowers down into their burrows. And so maybe it was just them dragging flowers and that's how the pollen ended up there. Um, what our evidence is showing is that actually there are some ancient plant remains. And actually, again, we, ha we have a much better ability to identify whether pollen is modern or ancient, for example. Um, but these mineralized plant remains that we can see in the micromorphology indicate that there are ancient plants within the sediments um, at this level where Shandar 4 was. So while many people, I think, had sort of discounted this idea of the flower burial, you know, while we can't say anything conclusive yet, we've got much more work to do. Um, it is suggestive that actually maybe we should rethink that idea and, and perhaps think of ways of testing that idea again. So, for example, with the new remains that we have, the new plant remains, it would be important then to look at soil samples from the same level, but at other parts of the cave to see whether we get the same kind of plant remains in those two, because that would suggest that they're just a common thing in the cave and nothing to do with the Neanderthal bones. Whereas if we find them just in association with those bones and in the sediment around the bones, that's actually very suggestive that plants are being put in with the body. Um, the problem then is how we interpret that, you know, are they being put in as an offering, as Selecki might have suggested, or is it something more practical? Are they being perhaps used to help cover up the body, for example? Um, that will be our another question to answer, but, but certainly um, it raises the possibility that we've perhaps been too quick to dismiss uh, that original flower burial idea, and it gives us a new opportunity to reinvestigate some of those possibilities and try and um, figure out actually what may have happened. Was it difficult or, or easy to, to establish the precise location of the, of the old excavations? Uh, I mean, I guess there would have been about 50 years or even more than 50 years between. Yeah, exactly. So, um, the trench when um, Ralph Zalecki's team left it in 1960 was never f fully filled back in, so what we would call backfilled. Um, and actually at the time he was excavating there, there were herders who used the cave to live in and to keep their animals in seasonally. Um, so over the years, basically waste from the animals and from people who lived there and then the, the natural accumulation of sediment and things filled the trench back up. So from what I've seen, I, I didn't have the opportunity to visit before the new excavation started, but from fo recent photos from just before, you could still see the depression of where the original trench was. Um, we also, of course, have Selecki's plans, um, which are detailed and show us exactly where his trench was. So we can sort of fit that all um, together. Was there a lot of deterioration of the walls from the I imagine they would have dug a rather straight straight down or with rather flat walls on the trenches and pits yeah was was a lot of that like deteriorated falling into the pit yeah to, 
to some extent yeah so i mean some of it's obviously as it, the trench fills back up that helps to protect it somewhat um but those trenches uh, sorry those walls had um deteriorated somewhat over the years you have to remember that it's a um it is a tectonically active part of the world so there are kind of small earthquakes periodically um there's also a big fault in the ceiling so a geological fault that runs across the ceiling of the cave and big stones sometimes fall down from up um in that fault and so that can be just quite disruptive to um the sediments in the cave and actually, for example, we know that in the years between when Ralph Selecki was excavating and, and when the current team went back, one of the huge stones that was sitting on the edge of the trench in Selecki's time, and by huge, we're probably talking about the size of you know, a very large car or, or a minibus, um, that had actually slipped off the edge of the trench down into the trench. And so those movements of big rocks and things like that also are going to disturb things. So, so as we're excavating, we do have to be quite careful um, about the fact that these are sort of ancient, ex- not ancient, but old excavation walls, and they will have destabilised over time. Um, so you have to have precautions when you're digging a deep trench anyway. You have to use what we would call shoring, so um, metal or wooden posts and planks or sheets of metal to put against the walls of the excavation to help support it and actually catch any material should they start to collapse and give you a chance to sort of get out of the way before there's any serious damage so we do have to be quite quite careful working in um working in the trench i think the 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 reinforced walls are it's quite common even if it's never been excavated before absolutely I think it depends on the soil, the depth, but I think that generally anything more than about a meter down, they start considering, okay, we need to put a, even if it's just plywood or so with a with a bar to keep it from falling inwards. Yeah. Because. That's absolutely the case. Even though you might be, most adults are at least a meter and a half tall. When you're down there, you may be on your knees and there may be a meter above you. Absolutely. It falls in, it's you could be under that and even even if you're even if you're standing in a hole like that if it collapses in on you you know like you say even if it's a meter and a half if it collapses in it's going to be very difficult to get you back out yeah because the the sheer weight of what falls in so we there are sort of specific requirements and it, it does vary as you say depending on the kind of type of site but a rule of thumb often um on british archaeological sites is that once it's sort of getting to about head height, you really must start putting in these supports, what we call shoring. Um, so, yeah, you're right. That would be absolutely standard practice um, on any site, really, once you get down to kind of a metre and a half or, or a little more. For you, what were some of the most interesting discoveries that you yourself made? Not necessarily something like an object you found, but it could also be... Uh, something you, you know, idea you discovered or a realization you made. Yeah, no, I mean, so as sort of a, a bone geek, if you like, um, I have to say that the discovery of New Neanderthal remains was just incredibly exciting. And to work with and, and see those remains in situ, so in the place where they've been for thousands of years, um, and to see them articulated. So by that we mean the bones are still all in anatomical position where they would be in the body. It's it's really amazing and, and sort of quite moving. It makes you feel kind of close to those individuals um, in sort of a in a in a strange way. It's hard to explain, but it it really is a such a privilege. I mean, I never imagined I'd ever get to go to a site like Shanadar Cave, you know, we I learned about it as an undergraduate student and I never imagined I'd go there, let alone be there and, and be the one who is excavating Neanderthal remains. It's really incredible. Um, I think as well, as I've already mentioned, some of the the finds from the micromorphology evidence, things like the, the mineralised plant material um, and the evidence that this depression that the bones were in was likely intentionally dug out. Um, those really have changed some of my thoughts about 
the other Neanderthal finds at Shanadar. Um, because I think, as I mentioned previously over the years, some of the ideas that Selecki put forward have been rather discounted or they've been argued against and there's been no no rebuttal. And I guess before I started working there, I was fairly convinced that the flower burial was not, you know, it wasn't a real thing and it was just modern contamination or, or however you wanted to explain it. But now I definitely think I'm much more open-minded to that possibility and excited to see actually what the evidence can show us. And it it might support more that idea or it might actually be further evidence against it. We don't know yet at that stage, but either way, it's it's exciting to reconsider that possibility and and bring some more robust evidence to the table. So I guess that the work that you're doing there now, this is going to have a carry-on effect that's going to influence what other people are researching about Neanderthals. Yes, I, I hope so. And I think so. I mean, a lot of the debate about Neanderthal um, behaviour towards the dead has tended to rely on older excavations. So these kind of Neanderthal finds are actually relatively rare and many were made in the earlier part of the 20th century or sort of the middle part of the 20th century, like at Shanadar Cave. When techniques of excavation, our understanding of archaeological processes, the methods that were available were not what they are today. And so in some respects, the debate over those older finds is sort of constrained by the kind of evidence we have. And so what's so exciting here is that we actually have a rare opportunity to test some of these ideas and, you know, use all of the the advances of modern archaeological science to actually try and answer some of these questions. And, and it's important to remember that actually whatever we can or can't show for the new finds, that doesn't necessarily mean that a particular Neanderthal find from France, for example, the same applies to that one. We need to look at a case-by-case basis. But what it will give us is some more concrete evidence as to exactly what was being done with the body and the the nuances, if you like, of um, behaviour towards the dead. So a bit about uh, you and, and your work in general. Why did you decide to become a an archaeologist or a paleoanthropologist? It's um, it's one of those things that I've just been interested in as long as I can remember. Um, I mean, <laughs> my mum will tell stories of how I was a, a kind of a strange child and I used to like going down the garden and trying to find bits of old animal bones from, you know, Sunday dinners and things like that. And I I just had this fascination with the skeleton. Um, and I was very lucky to grow up in a place um, in the UK where actually history was all around us. So I grew up near Canterbury in Kent and the city has medieval walls. It has part of a medieval castle. We have an amazing cathedral, you know, ancient churches. And I that just fascinated me. The idea of how life was for people in the past and how that affected their bodies and what their health was like and what they were like and how they thought was all just absolutely fascinating. Um, And so I was really lucky, I think, to to be able to follow that passion through into my university studies and then actually to continue as, as a career. What other projects are you working on now? Or what are some of the objectives of some of your other projects? So I'm working on um, various things. I have a strong interest in trying to understand um, modern health from an evolutionary perspective, what's sometimes called uh, evolutionary medicine. And so some of the recent work I've been doing, for example, is looking at um, the origins of particular characteristics that we see in modern populations. So people from South Asia, by you know, broadly um, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, that part of the world, for a given height or a given weight, they have a lower proportion of 
muscle and of organs, so um, vital organs, in terms of weight than, say, white Europeans do. And that's important because that lower lean mass, so we refer to the muscles and the organs as lean tissue or lean mass, um, is implicated in the fact that people from of South Asian ancestry have elevated risks of type 2 diabetes. So they tend to get it at a younger age and they also tend to get it at a lower body mass index. So many of us are familiar with body mass index as a kind of measure of, of body fat and um, but actually, how well that works as a as a measure depends partly on your on your ancestry, and so there's obvious there's an obvious question with South Asian populations is well why do they have this lower lean mass and um, could we perhaps use the skeletal record you know the archaeological record to understand when these characteristics came about and why they came about to help us understand why those particular populations are in the in the present at greater risk of certain non-communicable diseases. Um, so that's exactly what we've been trying to do, work on ways of estimating lean tissue mass using measurements from the skeleton, and then seeing how that varied through time um, using archaeological material from South Asia. And What's really interesting is that we can see that over the last 11,000 years, so that's about as far back as the, the skeletal record goes in South Asia at the present, um, across that period, the skeletal evidence indicates that individuals had this low lean mass characteristic, which suggests that it's not something recent. So some people have said, oh, well, maybe it was a, a result of um, some of the major famines that affected that region in the 19th century, for example. But clearly it goes back much further. Um, so for me, that's a really interesting point because it, it shows how we can use m the skeletal evidence and the archaeological evidence to actually help us understand people's health uh, in, in the present day. Um, other things that I'm working on are, are quite varied. So, for example, um, at the moment, I'm helping with the analysis of uh, the skeleton of um, an abbot of St. Albans Cathedral um, in England. Um, he was a guy called uh, John of Wheat Hampstead, who was um, abbot there twice in the, um, in the 15th century. And his skeletal remains were actually found at the cathedral a few years back. So in looking at what we can tell about his life and his health from the skeleton, we can actually add another dimension to our understanding of him as a person, because obviously the historical records only tell you so much and certain details about a person's life. And so it's really interesting for us to be able to actually fill in some of the gaps um, by studying his, his skeletal remains. So there's a couple of other sort of ideas of the kind of things that I'm involved in at the moment. Well, I think it's very interesting also to use archaeology for what are essentially historical periods. A lot of people are thinking about you know, prehistory, where you know, if, if it's prehistory, you almost have to use archaeology because you know, there was nothing written about the people. But uh, People might say, well, you know, for the historical period, we know people wrote down stuff. You know, even, you know, if we said 50 years ago, well, there's so many written records about the period. Why, why excavate it? What, where does archaeology come in? You know, and the, the, you know, the thing it keeps coming back to is people don't write everything down and people lie. <laughs> Maybe not That's... intentionally, you know. Right. Uh, I think the best example is uh, Bill Rathje's work in... Uh, where he was looking at his garbology project, where he was finding that what people said, it didn't always turn out to be true. Like he was looking at the consumption of stuff. Yeah. And a lot of stuff isn't written down because at the time, people just assume it. They, they know. Uh, I have a colleague who studies medieval history, and I think she was saying there's very little record about dance. Clearly, they would have danced then, but it's just... They just didn't write it down because it's something that right. everyone would have known. So there was no need to, to write it down. 
there was a lot of other things too that it was just assumed people would have learned it. Absolutely. And so there was no need to write it down at the time. And they weren't thinking about a thousand, two thousand years later, whether someone would want to know how they did that. So, yeah, it's, it's a key thing of looking at historical periods through archaeology as well. I think that's really important because people did write things down and the historical record is rich and exciting in its own way. But as you say, it has its own, just as the archaeological record has its own biases and, and limitations, so does the historical record. And it's only certain people as well that get written about. Um, you know, we tend to know an awful lot more about those who are relatively wealthy um, and men quite often as well, um, more so than women and children. So if we're interested in particular parts of society, um, or as you say, in, in aspects of life that at the time they wouldn't have thought were interesting enough or needed explanation to have written them down, if we're interested in those kind of bits of life, then archaeology has a huge amount to give and a huge amount to be able to to tell us. Um, and I think that some of the most exciting work for the historical period can actually come from when we do combine those different lines of evidence. Obviously, as you say as well, when we get back to sort of prehistoric periods, the archaeological record is our, is our key source of evidence. Um, and so equally valuable, you know, in perhaps even more so then as well. Do you have any advice for young people, for example, like a high school student or maybe an undergraduate university student who's thinking about going into paleoanthropology or archaeology of health, quaternary paleontology, this type, something, something similar to what you do? Do you have any advice for them? So what I would suggest is actually try and get some experience where you can um so volunteering um or taking part in excavations or um research projects if that opportunity is out there um i was very lucky when i was still in high school or our equivalent of high school i used to go and help out with my local archaeological trust just doing fairly simple things like you know, washing the pot sherds and the bits of bone and things like that. But all that kind of experience and helping out on excavations and, and seeing all aspects of the process that you can is really, really valuable. It all helps to build your understanding of the nature of the evidence, what's possible, what's not possible, what the limitations are, where we might develop things in the future. And I think that that practical experience where you can get it is is really valuable. You know, the classroom stuff is extremely important as well. But I think archaeology, I mean, is for many archaeologists or uh, same with paleontology, many paleontologists, it's a very practical subject. Um, and actually gaining a bit of an understanding of how things work and... Um, seeing archaeology in action if you like is is really really valuable do you think that if someone wanted to do paleoanthropology is it something they would have to sort of start specializing at the undergrad or is that something that would come more when you went into like a master's degree level i mean it really depends so if you're on the kind of course where you have options to study that and and so coming back to my own experience um the first time i got to study paleoanthropology was as an undergraduate um then that's great having said that if you're on a on a course perhaps that doesn't offer that or perhaps you're in a slightly different field and you're finding that actually this is what you would really love to do you can still take that up at master's level and there are various master's programs um such as our own here in cambridge but there are others as well that will introduce you to those subjects without assuming that you've studied them before. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if those opportunities are there, it's great to take them. If if they're not there, you know, there are other ways to take it up and you certainly can take it up um, from the master's level as well. 
Well, that's all been really interesting. Thank you for talking to us about the work that you're doing and what actually uh, a paleoanthropologist does. No, thank you. It's been really good to have this opportunity to, to talk to you. So thanks for the invitation. Yeah, have a nice day. Thank you, you too. <laughs> You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more episodes and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. And remember, the truth is down there.